name is. Oh, Michelle. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Welcome to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. Thank you so much for joining us for this update of the Latinx Renaissance. This is Tony Diaz, Libre Traficante. We're going to have the whole crew say hi to you. We got Nata. Hi. We don't have a Libre Traficante name for you just yet. You guys can call in suggestions. That's very cool. I like that. Hello, Letty. Letty. Also, we need your Libre Traficante name, I think. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Okay. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Hello, it's Joe Anthony. He didn't give his Libre Traficante name. And this is Marlon. How's everybody doing today? Excellent, Libre Traficante Malou. She's the only one that remembers her code name. And I'm really glad you're joining us. I'm glad that you've gotten through your work day. You've gotten past the capitalistic numbing of your soul. And you've come to this place. We're about to celebrate art, literature, and culture as we impose order on this chaotic universe, we're going to have for you today a show that breaks many boundaries in the studios. Dr. Jesus Esparza from Texas Southern University. He'll be joining Michelle Tovar Garcia. And they're talking about a powerful exhibit at the Holocaust Museum. And I love, too, because probably folks who are not aware of how cutting-edge nuestra palabra is, they may be saying, okay... Why are the Mexicans talking about the Holocaust Museum while our listeners who are regular listeners will be saying, of course, we know all about quantum demographics. We cannot wait to see what path we are led on by the intelligentsia of our day. <laughs> and because we have to support writers at all times, second half of the show, Eva Lessi Rodriguez has an awesome book. Love War Stories, because, you know, love is a battleground littered with cautionary tales and cherished letters from long-lost husbands. And Letty will be leading that discussion, because you are in love with this book, right? I am in love with this book. I I read this book by the second story. I was so sold on it, and then I kept reading it and reading it. This is how great this book was man so i was i was actually trying to multitask i was trying to <laughs> i was trying to watch the second season of glow gorgeous ladies of wrestling that's on netflix which i recommend for anybody like it's, it's amazing and then reading her book and then trying to do like laundry i had to stop myself and i actually on one story i had to i had to map it out i had to actually wow find out how many sections there were how many paragraphs like where the story was going and i was like oh okay and i got it you know and because it was a little longer than the other ones but the other ones were just so close to home and the way that she she brought in love and not just love but like the boundaries and betrayal and like their compromise i was like i was like oh my Goodness, I was like, the only person that really has captivated me like that has been Zadie Smith, Naomi Shihab Nye, or parts of David Foster Wallace, Pale, Pale King, which got, you know, written because of his misfortune, you know, we're not going to go there, but yes. But yes, I was just, I was so hyper and energetic. I was like, oh gosh, Love this it. is so awesome. <laughs> Love it. I firmly believe 
that Nuestra Palabra, the radio show, came into existence 17 years ago, so you could say that on the air. I, I agree. I you, agree. You were playing with time machines, and it paid off, and that, we're happy to bring you that in a little bit. That's not even the interview yet, folks. <laughs> so, so you need to get your tías, tíos, primos, primas all together. And, of course, uh, you're making hand gestures at me. I'm only going to call you up because I want to make sure that I attend to your your question. I was just going to say that we're going to give away a copy of Love War Stories. You mean the book that, that Letty just gushed about? Basically. We're going to sell it? or give it, We're giving it giving away. Giving it away. We love you, listeners. In an era of rampant capitalism. Mm-hmm. Here we are mm-hmm. giving you cultural capital. Because we do love the listeners. We do. That's a little later, though. They have to tune in. So get ready for that. And then, of course, we must ignore the distractions that the universe has imposed on us. There's so much we could talk about. Instead, we are going to stick to the to the commitment we made to our cultural capital, our community's commitment to our history and culture. On that note, tomorrow morning, I will be releasing the State of Houston Latinx, our 2018 report, Wednesday, October 3rd. 10 a.m. at Talento Bilingue with Houston. This is a response to the NALAC report, which quantified, because this is old news now, this report quantified that Houston Latinx Arc gets only 1% of Texas state funding and 7% of Houston funding when Latinos make up 44.3% of Houston. And tomorrow we begin to break down the state of our cultural capital and the disconnect there is because there's no lack of talent. And I also want to point something out. Sometimes the knee-jerk reaction from mainstream institutions is to say, well, Latinos don't apply. Well, we've, we're prepared to answer that. You'll get more of that tomorrow, including a response to the fact that because of the contract used to parcel out how hot tax funds are dispersed, Latinos don't even have access to over 40% of the funds to begin with. So, of course, there's a deficit. Tomorrow, we begin the campaign for equity. We will see equity, and we're going to start doing town halls throughout the city. Town halls, but let's get something straight. We are about quantum demographics. We study the praxis and live by it. So we're talking about meetings in English, Spanish, and Spanglish. We're talking about meetings with Afro-Latinos, LGBTQ communities, Asian communities. We're talking about reaching out to parts of the city that don't always get attention in this manner, including the Southwest side. We're talking about meeting with Central Americans, Chileans. This is it. All hands on deck. We're happy to bring you the next level of Latinx art from our community. And that report will be released tomorrow. And then the work begins. Town halls throughout the city. This Saturday, Another great tradition, 39th Annual Festival Chicano. Shouts out to Daniel Bustamante. Man, 39 years. Miller Outdoor Theater, Herman Park in Houston, Texas. It's free. Thursday, October 4th, you're going to have Latin Breed, Gary Hobbs, Imposible. Friday, Ruben Ramos and the Mexican Revolution. Don't get scared, folks. Don't let Republicans get scared. It's just music. David Mares, Nagami, Friday, October 5th. And then Saturday, Little Joey La Familia. What? Aviso with Oscar G. Hugo Guerrero and Stevie D. Going to be a great event. Make sure you get there. We may play some of their music. It's totally free. We can't give you tickets. Otherwise, 
we would. And really looking forward to that celebration of art, literature, and culture. And of course, there's only 35 days to the elections. Right. I, I don't know what else we can do to get people registered to vote and, and out there. You can get registered at your library as well, in case you haven't done that yet. Some people haven't. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I don't know what they expect. I don't know if they expect Beto O'Rourke to fall out of the sky in a parachute. Like he's doing Monday, October 8th at Lone Star College North Harris. Actually, the Latin Student Organization is has invited Beto O'Rourke, and he's going to Lone Star College North Harris. That's Monday, October 8th. 8th he'll be at the gymnasium and before people who are listening by mistake and are haters they're going to say oh my god you're a nonprofit. how can you support one candidate we've invited all candidates we've also invited ted cruz so if ted cruz wants to visit lone star college he's more than welcome right, we're, we're supporting the latin american student organization at lone star college of course so, you know, October 8th. Exactly. <laughs> so totally free. And we're just telling you, giving you facts. We're giving you the factual account of who has accepted the invitation. <laughs> and we'll be there Monday, October 8th. And then last announcement will be, I'm excited to announce, I'm actually working on a video for Texas History that will give an insight into many contributions to the making of Texas. 1800, about 30 minutes long. And it's going to include, I wanted to mention it too, because we're talking about Chicano Festival. Little Joe, it's going to include Little Joe and and Willie Nelson, believe it or not, in a video on Texas history. Should be fun. Yeah. So stay tuned for all that and more updates. I will be giving you updates about the state of Houston Latinx art on the air, which will then become part of history because our radio shows are archived by the University of Houston Digital Archives. Selected podcasts are available at nuestapalabra.org. You can actually go to kpft.org to hear the shows for two weeks, and then they disappear. But like I said, sometimes we save them every time each show is saved by the University of Houston Digital Archives. And our hard copies, that we'll be donating these hard copies to the Houston Public Library Hispanic Collection. So we're not talking smack when we say we make history. We're making it. And we will donate to them a copy of the NALAC Report, Quantifying Inequity in Arts Funding Toward Our Community, as well as the 2018 State of Latinx Art. And I want to tell you right now, if you think this is the end of it, nothing on this will end till we have equity. I'm promising you that right now. That's not how we play. We will pursue this until victory and we will have victory because I'm telling you now there'll be a 2019 state of Houston Latinx art a 2020 state of Houston Latinx art a 2021 equity, state of Houston Latinx art equity 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 what do you want equity what do you want it what do you want equity what do you want it now equity so equity equity Remember that and live it. Cool. We're going to take a musical break, and we'll come back with more culture capital. You're experiencing Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having to say, on the air.
We are back. You're listening to Nuestra Palabra, Latina writers having their say. If you're joining us live, how 2018 of you. We appreciate that because we are live at 100,000 watts. But perhaps you're listening to this at the radio archives from the University of Houston. Or perhaps you're listening to a podcast studying about this. I think our next topic, very much worthwhile, to worth, worthy of review in history courses Texas History, Mexican American Studies. We are joined live in the studio by dear friends of ours, Dr. Jesse Esparza. ¿Cómo estás? Bien, bien. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And Michelle Tovar Garcia, mm -hmm. longtime friends of what we do. Now, I want to say a little something about Dr. Esparza. He's an assistant professor of history in the College of Liberal Arts and Behavioral Sciences at Texas Southern University where he has taught since 2009. His area of expertise is on the area of Latinos in the United States with an emphasis on civil rights activism. Dr. Sparza is currently working on a manuscript entitled Raza Schools, Latino Educational Autonomy and Activism in Texas, 1920 to 1980, which offers a multiracial narrative of a Latino-owned school district in West Texas since the end of the First World War through the post-civil rights era. You want to do us a pleasure of telling us of about course. Michelle? Of course. We're also here happy to welcome Michelle Tovar Garcia, Associate Director of Education. Michelle Tovar is with the um, Holocaust Museum and is responsible for building bridges between the Latino community and the museum in Houston. Her initiatives include outreach to bilingual and dual language school programs, creating educational workshops, events for teachers, parents, and community leaders, and working with local and national organizations that are dedicated to serving Latinos. She was a participant of the 2015 Smithsonian Latino Museum Studies Fellowship Program, a 2017 Fulbright Hay Scholars, currently a doctoral student at U of H, studying curriculum and instruction in K-12 social education with an emphasis on social justice <laughs> education. Bad. Can we say that? <laughs> it's a fact, We're so yeah. proud to have you. Thank you. That's fantastic. And she's wearing a t-shirt that says, vote them out. Hey. <laughs> Dope. Yep. Now, now, sometimes uh, like sometimes, some of our guests are like, oh, man, don't read the whole thing. I do want to because we're actually spreading cultural capital. So people know about different careers, histories, mm -hmm. and, and different parts of these fields, too. So we may not even dwell on it. But we dropped some, <laughs> we dropped some cool, some, some they, cool they goals. They deserve to know too. The people deserve to know who they're <laughs> listening to. E exactly. <laughs> That's what's up. And we want to tell folks about the exhibit that is called "The Texas Liberator: Witness to the Holocaust." Mm -hmm. So, so give folks the facts on how long it runs. Dr. Sparza's visit, and then tell us how this came to be, because that is also fascinating. Right. So this exhibit will be on display to, um, until Sunday, October 28th. It's a short run. Uh, we are in a temporary location, so our, our exhibits have been a, a, um, about a three-month exhibition there. But uh, yeah, this this exhibit came from Texas Tech. It was created there, and it's a beautiful exhibit featuring uh, liberators uh, from the Holocaust uh, during World War II. Uh, but one of the things that was missing was representation in the exhibit. Um, there, it was a um, exhibit that only focused on the white experience. So I felt this was missing our Latino experience. And I know Jesse had done uh, extensive work and research in, in his background with uh, World War II. And I reached out to him and I said, you know, we need, to, we need to put some representation into this. And so that's how I, I got in touch with them about it. But, mm -hmm. but I, I do want to pause because that's such right. a big deal. Because, mm -hmm. one, you have to have the position there. You have to know about the history right. anyway. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be able to be conscious enough to say, let's add. 
right. then be able to act on it and be able to put an exhibit out. Right. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean, but we worked with our curatorial team and we were able to research um, some of our liberators that we had um, already their testimonies documented within the exhibit and within the museum and from those testimonies we pulled out our Latino experience and we were able to pull out um, Jesse Reyes and Johnny Marino from from there and because of that we wanted the, their stories to be told those narratives to be told you know but those are the part of the collection at the Houston at the Holocaust Museum, museum. Yes, correct. and then you were able to look them up by last name or Spanish surname right or? through their surname of course um, and then je through Jesse's work as well we were able to research some of the names that he had and unfortunately we didn't have their testimonies a lot of these testimonies um, we haven't been able to collect through them through Houston, but they have been collected through other places at UT, Voces. Um, I know Jessica can extend on that, but um, because of that, it was important for us, like I said, the narratives to be told because a lot of our students that come in are from Latinx or African-American background, and we wanted those narratives out there. Uh, we tried to pull some African-American experience from our testimonies, but we didn't have those available. So you did, you were looking for representation deep. Exactly, so not yes. just, not just raza, mm -hmm. but also African-American. In, but right. you just couldn't at this time. Right. And in all fairness, too, that's not our expertise either. So, right. But that may be the next level of research. Yes, definitely. Man. And, and we've been in touch with Texas Tech, and we want to continue our, our, our efforts to help them as much as possible to add on to this uh, exhibit, as, as much as they are going to travel it throughout the, uh, Texas. And I imagine both the institutions were very open to this. Yeah, they yes. were very receptive mm -hmm. to this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it can be, it can be troublesome to hear that uh, there are gaps in the research that was done. They put in a lot of effort and a lot of money to get this done, and I, I really commend them for the work that they did. They, they even uh, were able to create a beautiful website, a very interactive website uh, that has uh, sort of these very uh, uh, awesome ways to, to teach history. Uh, and I think that they're sort of breaking grounds in many instances with what they're doing, but they, they've been receptive uh, despite us telling them, say, hey, look, I think that uh, you, know, you might have blinked a little bit on this mm -hmm. part. Uh, we were nice about it. I know that Michelle is very <laughs> professional about it, and and you know that's sort of the wherewithal, right? I mean, you gotta you gotta recognize that there's an issue, and then you gotta sort of make voice to the issue, uh, and then you gotta convince, right? Because they could have said no, 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 right? Exactly, and I guess even 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 as activists, I kind of think that first step, no matter what it is, first step is to say, hey, there's a disconnect, right, right, and and you're right. There can be knee-jerk reactions, or, or there's not the resources. That's mm -hmm. always it. A but, defense to not looking into things that should be looked into. Oh, we're busy. We don't have enough time. Right, right, right. We don't have not enough, enough staff. Money, not money. enough time, not yeah. enough staff. Yeah. I mean, in the arts, they didn't apply. Well, right, well, right, <laughs> right, right. They didn't tell their story, so we couldn't document whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But 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 then you, you did. How do you make that case anyway? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. Like what what's a good tactic? Although it seems like. You're right. there, so they're open to it. And yeah, I mean, what I, I I didn't have a conversation w with them about this, but what I would have told them was that we have the evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the evidence, and we can we can produce to you today if you like that evidence um, that I think justifies right you sort of considering creating and you know or at least expanding the exhibit or adding to the exhibit. Right. And so and then, Johnny on the spot, we would have given it to them. Yeah, and the data of, of, you know, who's coming to the museum, who's our audience, you know, we want our students to feel like they can come in and see an ex exhibition that reflects them. So being able to show them that and, and being able to have those stories for them in, in, in English and in Spanish. Great. That, mm -hmm. That's a great way to put it. It's like mm -hmm. we're, we're in the era where we have the experts and the evidence. It's hard to argue against that, and it makes mm -hmm. the case 
mm-hmm. a little easier. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So. You know, and you know, I I sort of have to give credit where credit is due. Right, sort of leading us in this effort would be uh, the work of the journalists and the historians and the writers and the students mm-hmm. out of UT Austin. Right, the Voices Oral History Project. Right. Uh, and I'm glad that I know of that source. But I, I, I was having conversations with other persons, other colleagues who had never heard of it. And, I, I, you know, so I educated them on it. But, you know, one of the things that I realized and, is that I think that Voices should probably serve as sort of the mecca for all oral histories regarding all Latinos because we tend to work in our own siloed kind of communities right. for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so, but I think that if we were all sort of to collaborate, I think that the database that she has on there now, that they have on there now, which is enormous Amazing. and fantastic, it, it almost double in size. I, I have no doubt that it, if everyone just sort of, you know, donates and gives their stuff right. to voices. And, and by so, the way, Maggie, who in charge of it, has said, I mean, we used it for the Mexican American Studies Toolkit. We had your work there as well. We appreciate that so much. Uh, but she had said she's open to letting it be used the way you're kind of describing yeah, yeah. but we I, it's kind of mind-blowing you're right people don't know about it mm-hmm. yeah you know in, in my mind that's the first place i go to when i when i when i'm preparing a new lecture or i'm, I'm doing a talk do, or, do me a favor because probably people listening don't know <laughs> about it so mm-hmm. tell, tell us a little tell folks a little bit about the voces project so the voces oral history project was started several years back i remember when i was a graduate student i was they were attempting to recruit me but i was in the thick of dissertating and so i had to sort of say no but to become doctors, <laughs> but well, yeah, I mean, you know, I had to sort of, you know, you know, I had to set my priorities in right. a different way. But uh, the the Voices Oral History Project is the, that I can tell the largest oral history project that is dedicated to capturing the the voices and experiences of Latinos uh, who served in the military, who went abroad, who stayed stateside, and also now the voices of family members of these Latino veterans between mm-hmm. World War II and the Vietnam mm-hmm. War. Uh, and so it's a website that you can go to Voices uh, Oral History Project. You can Google it, Voices Oral History Project dot org. I think is the website. But you, and they have they break it up into collections. They break it up into wars. They break it up into sort of these search periods. You know, you can look up civil rights. You can look up segregation. You can look up different kinds of things, and then you will get a, an image, several images at times, of the veteran or the, the family of the veteran, and then get a, a short abstract of the interview that was conducted. Mm-hmm. It's fabulous. Beautiful. That's beautiful. So so then. You then have compiled stories for this exhibit. So, so tell us about the exhibit. Tell us about the presentation you're going to be making. Well, so we're building off of the work that was initially uh, started by the Texas Holocaust and Genocide Commission. And through uh, what they call sort of this honor row, it was a pamphlet, a booklet of every person in the state of Texas that was uh, part of a group that liberated a camp or a subcamp, a concentration camp during World War II. Um, and we were able to discover that anywhere between 30 to 31 uh, ethnic Mexicans, right? Mexican Americans uh, are liberators in Texas. Wow! And it's hard to say, right? I mean, the number—I get that number because of the distinct Spanish last name that I can say. Oh, okay, that's a Spanish last name. Right. Mm-hmm. He's probably Mexican American. He might be Central American or he might be South American. So I'm right. generalizing. And and from that same honor roll, I was that same booklet. Uh, I was able to determine that uh, Houston alone has four to five wow. of these persons. Mm-hmm. And from that, uh, I, I recognize two names immediately. I recognize the names of Jesse Reyes uh, and also of Johnny Marino, who now are part of the exhibit mm-hmm. and who will be, right, sort of showcasing 
uh, through October. Uh, and so I was able to, because we interviewed these individuals. I interviewed both of these men back in 2015. I interviewed Johnny Marino three months before he passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were in his house for two hours, and we could have wow. gone on. I mean, this dude has stamina. He had a four-hour <laughs> interview with the Holocaust Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the only reason we didn't get to finish our conversation was because I ran out of battery juice. <laughs> you know? But uh, so I was able that's to... It, that's a Mexicano. Yeah, man. I mean, he was <laughs> going on, and, you know, and so, um, but I, I was able then to also cross-reference the work that I did and the, the and with the work that uh, Maggie and Voices Over History Project did. Man. And they're on there too. In fact, through Voices, I was able to uncover the names and get information on two other uh, Holocaust liberators, Latino Holocaust liberators, like er- Herman Cortez. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was there. So was uh, Jose Angel Lopez. And so was Manuel Prieto. Wow. So we got a total of five individuals uh, from the Houston area who either are from Houston or who lived in Houston at the time of the but now I, I gotta pause here because this is we are cultural accelerators. This is an era of una potencia pero fuerte because mm-hmm. we already described how we got the project to that point. Mm-hmm. So you actually had interviewed one of these gentlemen mm-hmm. as well. That's right. And you had the expertise to bring it all together, find out more, and bring it back to the exhibit. Right. This, this sounds like such a powerful exhibit. But I love too that it's gente that we know. I mean, you got you both of you. Mm-hmm shaping it mm-hmm. but it's a deep intellectual pursuit because you know we can do it with all cariño intent but you're both experts in your fields mm-hmm. so you can present it in a way that's academically sound absolutely culturally relevant mm-hmm. absolutely Man. in fact we invite you to come out on the 9th next next tuesday october 9th mm-hmm. at 6 p.m right. at the holocaust museum right there on at the kirby location mm-hmm. come out and hear a lecture where, where we're going to uh uh, have a small conversation about the Latino experience in World War II, and we're going to showcase these four or five gentlemen and their families uh, as we highlight their accomplishments, uh, what their life was like before the war, during the war, and then after the war, mm-hmm. just to make sure that you know, everyone in the room and, and those who are, uh, can get access to the lecture understand that Latinos were there, man. Half a million of us were there. And I want people to take off work to go there. So let's, because someone's going to say, well, I can read Dr. Sparso's work. But you're also going to give them behind the scenes. That's correct. And we're going to have actually the family of the veterans. Oh, there. They'll be there man. too. They've been invited. They've already come to the to the museum and right. they were, award- there was a special luncheon for them. They were awarded mm-hmm. medals in honor of the, you know, wow. of the of their, you know, because, you know, Johnny Marino's passed away. Jesse Reyes has passed away, but their sons were there. Mm-hmm. And so they'll be there again. Um, um, and you know it, it's it's a family affair, man. And and you know what too? I mean, it's powerful the contribution they made. Get triste that they don't know how it's being lauded, but how powerful for the family to right. know, and how powerful for us to be at a point in history where we can do it all and go back. And I'm a, I'm a walk in a classroom Thursday and teach this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a beautiful era. Yeah. Any any closing thoughts? Are you happy the way things turned out? Oh, I, I'm loaded question. Pretty, totally loaded question. <laughs> I'm pretty happy. I mean, I, like going back to the family, I feel like. Um, one of the Marino's uh, family members is coming back to be a docent at our museum wow. because we're seeking uh, Spanish-speaking docents for the new building that will be open in summer of next year. And she, because of his story and because we continue to, to respect and share his story, um, she wants to come back and contribute what she can. And she wants to continue his you know, legacy through that. Man. So, yeah, we, we are excited about the new uh, museum in 2019. It will be fully English and Spanish bilingual. Wow. And so we're opening that space, an inclusive space for families to come in and feel comfortable being in a space and, in, and learning a history that isn't commonly taught in schools. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, well thank, you, thank you for taking time to tell us about it. I can't wait to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gracias. 
And uh, uh, tell folks one more time the details. Okay, so we are located at 922 Kirby Zero. I'm sorry, 9220 Kirby Drive. We're in temporary space. What's the intersection? It is uh, about a mile south of NRG Stadium. Yeah, we're we're in a temp space, and we're open Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and Saturdays, 10 to 5, and Sundays, noon to 5. And it is students are free always um, with the valid ID for college students. And, yes, come down and see us. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Definitely come out on the 9th next Tuesday. Okay, here, from 6.30 to 8, mm-hmm. sin falta. Great. We'll be back after this musical message. This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Have to Say on the Air. Según tú, ¿dónde estás?
Man, that was fun. That was so cool. Appreciate the crew putting that together and, and those folks coming with. I appreciate you listening live to it and, of course, afterwards as well. But, of course, we have to turn our attention to literature because that's what brought us here. So Nata's going to introduce our next guest. A Latinx writer, Lise Rodriguez. She is a writer, and she uh, debuted a short story collection called Love War Stories from by the Feminist Press. 2018. Um, she's published fiction before in the Boston Review, in All About Skin, in Obsidian, Quayley, Bilingual Review, other publications. She's a founder and editor of an interview series focused on contemporary Puerto Rican writers in order to highlight the current status and the continuity of a Puerto Rican literary tradition from the continental U.S. Um, the series is published in Centro Voces, an e-magazine of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. And she has earned a MFA in creative writing from Emerson College, a PhD in English creative writing from the University of Illinois at Chicago. And to learn more about her, visit www.ivelissesrodriguez.com. And welcome, Ivelisse. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. Wonderful to have you on the air. Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited. No, so I'm a little scared of the radio. De verdad? No. no <laughs> many. It's kind of like a book, but the words move faster, I guess. <laughs> and the voices in my head <laughs> are being transmitted. And you don't look scared at all. I know. He's like, you're so amazing at this. <laughs> no, and congratulations very much on all that you've done. But also, you really are pushing hard to... Make sure our communities are represented. Um, and, you know, I, I think especially the Boricua community. Um, I don't know if we can get into it about, you know, the way um, the Boricua community has been treated, especially after the hurricane. Mm -hmm. But even regardless of that, it seems that it is so important to give a true representation of Puerto Rican literature. How do you feel about that? Is that accurate to say? No, that's completely accurate. I mean, yes, it's completely accurate. Um, my concern was that um, just with a lot of um, new immigrant um, Latino groups um, coming to the U.S., um, there was more attention on those narratives. And it seemed to me like what was getting lost is, again, like this almost like 100-year um, tradition of Puerto Rican literature. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that Puerto Rican writing from the continental U.S. wasn't being forgotten because um, the way I think about it is this, is that, you know, one of the um, several texts um, within Puerto Rican literature is the Memoirs of Fernando Vega, and it starts um, in 1916, um, and the narrative starts in 1916 when he comes to the U.S., and so he highlights um, the Colonia community, which is basically the pre-Barrio community, uh, meaning essentially that there are very few Puerto Ricans um, in the East Harlem that he's describing. And so there are these pockets of Puerto Rican literature. And so that would be, I think, a starting point for Puerto Rican literature in the continental U.S. And then, you know, we go on to um, Piri Thomas's Down the Moon Streets, um, and it reflects um, his life in the 50s and 60s. Then we get to the New Yorkian poets, and that's in the 70s. 
And then I think the last highlight is um, when I was Puerto Rican by Esmeralda Santiago. And so I believe that comes out um, early 90s. Wow. And so, yeah. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted just again, like, to highlight first, see who's out there. Mm. And um, I pitched my interview series to the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, and they were like, well, tell us a little bit more. So I did a call, <laughs> and I, you know, I got all these Puerto Rican writers that I didn't even know existed, and so it was really exhilarating wow. to see that we were out there, and reading their work um, has also been great, because one of my areas of expertise is Latino literature, um, Puerto Rican literature, and so I was able to see just how much um, their literature diverged from the literature that came before it. Mm. So it's really good to see and trace um, the trajectory of that shift. Um, one of the things in my own writing is, that I'm concerned with is moving away from from narratives that have to do with a migrant story. Mm. Um, and so I was pleased to see that um, some of the contemporary Puerto Rican writers were doing that and offering new narratives which, again, we're not really hearing about. So, to me, it's really important, not just as a Puerto Rican writer, but um, as a scholar and probably just as a Puerto Rican, I want to I wanna make sure that our stories are heard and they continue to be heard. And um, much like Mexican-Americans, you know, I think the Puerto Rican group in the U.S., we have a long history here, and so I just never want that to be forgotten. That's beautiful. And, and of course, um, shouts out to uh, Esmeralda Santiago has been a big friend of Nuestra Palabra. She was actually one of the first nationally published writers that we hosted way back when. And uh, para que sepa la gente, uh, I've spoken about it before, the first Latino writer I ever read was Piri Thomas. Piri Thomas. Isn't that crazy? I was like, what? This book's awesome. Wait, you mean Latinos write books? So, but, and, and by the same token, too, exactly as a writer, we want to be able to break break the molds as well, which you have done so so successfully. Um, let the let the adores your book. She's gonna ask you a question, but quick quick question. Do you have a page or two to read to our listeners? Oh, sure. Okay. And, and I'll let you flip through the book to find it. Uh, but going back to your writing, you do break a lot of molds. Yes, yes. Um, when I was reading, what I really loved, I loved the way that you did approach like love and love being like a betrayal and then a compromise. And then also like the second story about, um, I think it was the second story, the girl that was like in class, the most voted to be pregnant. And yeah. and I was that struck me um, really struck me because it was just kind of, I mean, for me, I don't want to make any comments about my particular upbringing, but like, you know, <laughs> um, being brown and then kind of like, you are too much of something. We're not going to give you like entrance to gifted and talented or, you know, you're just on level. Shouldn't you be pregnant by now or mm. like something? Don't think this usually Dang. happen? Or you're like a sophomore and like, well, that girl got pregnant. Why aren't you? Why are you still here? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it's just like, wow, thanks, guys. You know, and um, <laughs> and I did. I did myself like um, you, you mentioned in here, like the one girl that's um, she's doing her SATs and 
in it goes in the end of the story about like the trade off. Like I think it was a little Santeria um chango. Uh have a chango. Yeah. And so sometimes like I know for you know, my family too, it was like you didn't really have an education. It was all about being in love and being, you know, being in a marriage and having kids and sometimes what what is just so fresh about this, it's like you know, there is these pockets about choosing education and it's a distance. And then it's just like, well, you either you go to school, you educate yourself or you have a husband and you accept what, you know, you know, you accept that some things are the way that they are. And um, <laughs> and then the the 30, the 32 page short story that you do about the stocking, <laughs> that that one, I actually I was reading it, and then I actually had to, like, go on some paper and, like, outline the sections <laughs> and, and, you know, just, like, and go through paragraphs. And I was like, I'm going to get this story. Like, there, there's a there's a following here. And so I was like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> I knew it's that. But, I, I mean, I liked the book so much that when I couldn't get it, I was just like, let's go hyper-analytical. And I was just all... <laughs> but, yeah, the, the, the writing, it so reminds me of, like, Zadie Smith. Um, and that's like, that's like one of my, one of my little heroes too. Like Zadie Smith has, she has, a, she's from London, but like the stories that she says is kind of a refreshing because you just, I didn't know that this particular view for like Hispanic, Latino, Latinx communities, like it just, you don't hear about this often, but mm. you often feel isolated from your own culture. Is and, that the reaction you wanted? Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's true with the with the education aspect, and I thought a lot about that. Um, and you know, we see this in like Hunger of Memory um, by Rachel Rodriguez, and um, even some parts of How to Leave Hialeah by Janine Capacuset. And there are other writers that um, do focus on this in the sense that, like, education really brings losses. Um, it doesn't just lead to upward mobility, mm -hmm. but, you know, it's a way that um, in some ways you get cut off from your culture or people cut you off from your culture. Um, so, real. yeah. <laughs> you should have listened to our last guests, actually. They were they, they studied this, these things. I think she was. She was listening. Wonderful. <laughs> well, and, and I think the other part, too, is that we have to just prepare our folks, too, for all those nuances mm -hmm. that, you know, there's a trade-off, but if you know that and it's worth it, you know, lean in. And right, right, right. No, that's true. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying don't go be No, no. But... <laughs> to it. And I mean, it's, um, I, you know, I've been talking about this on my tour in the sense like, you know, my mother used to say things like, oh, you don't know how to cook, you don't know how to clean, <laughs> And I was like, well, I'm getting a PhD. I'm like, look, I'm good at everything. So, like, there's still value in what I'm doing, even if I'm not doing, like, the traditional things, you know? Well, and you do have a very formal background, too, which is which is fantastic because you have a very, very high level of aesthetics, but you really do bring experiences from the corazón. Um, did you feel that distancing when you were at some of these um, um, the, the programs you were at, which are, I'm going to guess, and I may be wrong, I hope I'm wrong, but we're not majority Latinx. 
<laughs> no, you were right. Dang, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> well, you know what? I think um, yes and no. In the sense that what happened was I felt it long before other people did. So I mm. think by the time I got to my um, – by, by the time I got to Columbia for um, undergrad and then my MFA, my PhD program, I was kind of used to it. <laughs> um, what happened was when I was 13 – um, I was living in Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is where I grew up, and there's a large Puerto Rican population there. And um, I basically one day a stranger showed up to my door and wanted to see if I wanted to apply to this boarding school in um, Northfield, Massachusetts. Uh, the school's Northfield, Mount Hermon. And I applied, and I got in, and it's then that I felt um, my world shift. Mm. Um so, again, I grew up in a Puerto Rican neighborhood, so then going off to the sporting school, that's the first time I felt like a minority. Wow. Um, because technically we were, and um, I felt that isolation there, and then I also realized I was poor um, oh, compared to my classmates, mm. even the middle class ones. Like, I was definitely, definitely poor. And so those are things that I never really had to think about growing up in Hollywood because we were all the same. Mm. Like, even though there were people that weren't Puerto Rican, I mean, there are, um, Holyoke, Massachusetts has the highest concentration of Puerto Ricans outside of Puerto Rico, which nobody would ever know because nobody ever thinks <laughs> about Puerto Ricans in Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so, you know, um, so I struggled with that there while I was in high school. And so by the time I got to college, it didn't really phase me in the same way that it um, bothered my uh, classmates because mm -hmm. for them, that was probably their first experience being at a PWI and mm -hmm. I had already gone through it. So Now, um, I, I could chat with you for hours, but do you have an excerpt to read? Because we're coming close to the end, but I definitely want our sure. <laughs> Um I'll read actually from the first movie uh, Letty mentioned, which is Holyoke Mass and Ethnography. So again, it's about the place I grew up in, and um, so the the style at the beginning is a little bit ethnographic. Um, so I'll just read the first section, and it's um, what promise she had. Incorporated in 1850, she was awarded medals and monikers, the birthplace of volleyball, queen of industrial cities. One year, she was paper city of the world, of the world. Paper was like gold here. The mills opening in 1849 started everything. 25 paper mills at its Venus. The people boomed from 4,600 to 60,000 inhabitants from 1885 to 1920. The streets the teamed with Irish and Polish immigrants and with refined people who were able to make this small western Massachusetts town a city where Broadway shows were previewed a place that was about to come into its own in the shadow of New York City, but without any of the city's tribulations. That was then. Today, there are new monikers, new people. Highest teenage pregnancy rate in Massachusetts, crime rate above the national average, highest concentration of Puerto Ricans anywhere in the world outside of Puerto Rico, and girls like Veronica. Potente, potente. So, w what are you working on now? 
Um, I am working on a novel called The Last Salsa Singer, and it's about 70s-era musicians in Puerto Rico, mm. and it's about how basically they become famous over a song about a girl they hate. <laughs> and um, they, the song was meant to get her out of their lives, and now her and her memory are forever attached to them. And so it's basically about how she's seen as silly and she's dismissed, but she's the one who upends their world. Oh, man. But that seems so familiar to one of your short stories about the poet. (laughs) I love it. I can't wait to read that. And we have just a few minutes to give away the copy. So 713-526-5738. The fifth caller will get a copy of Love War Stories. And again, 713-526-5738. Five two six five seven three eight. Una bendición to get to chat with you. Uh, I'm scared to ask you if you if your tour includes Houston just yet. I'm scared you're gonna say no and break our hearts. Uh, <laughs> it does not. Oh. I'm willing to take any invitations that come my way. Okay, so we'll start. We'll start working on that. Yeah. We'll start. Yeah. We'll, we'll start. <laughs> Have you been to Texas? Have you done a reading in Texas at all yet? No, but I have been to Houston. My sorority sister lives there. So oh, I see. went to visit her last year, yeah. Ah, wow. During Humidity <laughs> Fest, so. Yes, it was so hot. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, that, this way you're used to it already. So we hope that you can come back. We wish you continued success. Thank you for all that you do for our community. And we can't wait to read your next book. Gracias. Thank you very much. You are listening to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. Hey, crew, thanks for putting a great show together. Leti, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. No, that was so much fun. That was fun. <laughs> Nata, gracias. Yes, gracias, Tony. Gracias, Leti. And Everybody. to the silent folks running the board, because somebody got to run the board. Joe Anthony, you're thank rocking you. it. Libro Tafecantamalu is answering the phones. The phones are, are blowing up. We appreciate your support. I will see you tomorrow. It's going to be Wednesday morning, the release of the State of Houston Latinx Art 2018. Wednesday, October 3rd, 10 a.m. at Talento Bilingue de Houston with updates to come. Remember, we're demanding equity. 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 Thanks for tuning in.
No matter where you are on the political spectrum, KPFT is a daily check-in on the workings of democracy. Part of a democracy is an independent press and media. Media like this is supposed to be the check and balance on government. And community radio is one of the few media outlets left that is completely independent. That's why in this age of the greatest media consolidation America has ever seen, having different voices out there is essential. KPFT has been around since 1970, and we have survived through the contributions of people like you. Listeners who donate to KPFT support us because they know that's what keeps KPFT independent. Why wait for a pledge drive? You can join KPFT online at kpft.org. Thomas Jefferson said, People cannot be both ignorant and free. Help keep KPFT vibrant with your financial contribution. Visit kpft.org to join securely online. This is commercial-free, listener-sponsored Pacifica Radio, KPFT Houston. Thousands of you have heeded the call, but there's always room for more. You can find KPFT on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. From our latest updates to funny videos, contests, news, and more, you can find us anytime, day or night. We're at KPFT Houston on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We'd love to give you the latest. Plus, you're already on Facebook. Why not get behind the scenes of Houston's leader for independent music, arts, ideas, and culture, 